I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. And the uh, most important thing I can say is I'm not drank or used since May 11th, 1976. And uh, soon I are going to go through the steps here uh, in this session. Uh, it's the same steps. Alanon doesn't have a set of steps. It's AA gave Alanon the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but she's going to do them as an Alanon, and I'm going to do them as an alcoholic. So we're going to uh, buzz right on through here. We won't be able to go into any uh, great depth with it, but it, but we'll be able to share with you what each step, uh, how, how it's, we benefited from it. That's the main thing. And, and you got to realize that we're, we're in the program over 33 years, and the steps are a very important part of our life and, uh, and our recovery, and still, still are. And uh, we're very active in taking newcomers through the steps and doing step studies. But every time we do something like this, uh, we get to work the steps. We're going to work the steps in front of you right here, right now. And, and it, it benefits us. Each time, it's like a shower from the inside out. So we're going to uh, uh, take off on step one. Hi, I'm Sue. Grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. And, uh, you know, uh, the steps is what put me back together. And like he said, the Al-Anons, we adapted the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't have steps and the principle of the first step is the word we. I'm so grateful for that word because it's like, I got me here. We keeps me here. Okay, I is the self-will. And I had to learn that uh, in the second um, principle of this step is powerless. I always thought I had the power to fix and do and make people think and, and act the way I wanted them to. And so the first step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And uh, <clears throat> my life had become very unmanageable. I didn't understand the powerlessness. And like I shared this morning, I had to recognize that I had been fighting alcohol, not the alcoholic. I was trying to change what alcohol did to the alcoholic. He didn't like what it was doing to him either. And I didn't understand that part of his disease. In the AA 12 and 12, it talks about the allergy. And I didn't have that allergy, so I didn't understand um, the powerlessness over alcohol. So I had to study the AA Big Book to find that out. What I think is amazing today is that uh, I have participated and done uh, the last two weeks um, 12 and 12 workshops. I did one in San Jose, and I just did one in Vegas. The reason I did the one in Vegas, because it seemed to me like I sponsor a couple of AA ladies there, is that they take newcomers through the AA Big Book, and as they get to a step in the AA Big Book, they go through that step, and then they just keep reading the Big Book. And they don't even use the AA 12 and 12. And to me, there is so much powerful stuff in these books, these two 12 and 12 books. And so I do with uh, ladies that I sponsor like my sponsor did me. Now, when I got to the program and started working the steps, we did not have an, an Al-Anon 12 Steps and 12 Tradition book. And so all of my studying with the steps came out of the AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, 
which fit me every time I saw the word alcoholic, I put myself in there and totally identified because the principles are the same. And like I said earlier, you know, his obsession was the alcohol and mine was him. It's like I got drunk in the head being obsessed with him. And so now when I take a newcomer through the steps, I ask them to read step one in both the Al-Anon, the AA 12 and 12 every day for a week and then write their first step of what they got out of it and then we go over it together. And uh, we both share, I share with the newcomer what I've gotten out of step one and how it applies to me and she uh, shares with me. And then I say, now you do the same thing with step two. And step three, we do the same thing. And then when we get to step four, we go to the AA Big Book and we do the four-column inventory that I shared with you earlier. In um, Al-Anon 12 and 12, it talks about when we find ourselves continuing to direct, we remind ourselves that we had no power, no right to exercise power over anyone but ourselves. And the way I got to eliminate that kind of power in my life is I got a sponsor. And a sponsor would give me direction. I was powerless. I had to stop giving direction when I was new. I had to start receiving direction. (laughs) I thought it was so funny in the AA participation meeting last night that one lady that got up with time to share, those that you were here, and they were trying to tell her something, and she goes, don't tell me what to do. I hate authority. (laughs) I thought I identify with that. And uh, so I had to... Uh, become teachable. Becoming humble means to me to become teachable. And so I had to learn how to do that, to listen, so I could learn. I didn't know that, I thought communication was talking to you to get my point across, and I had to learn that part of commu- communication was listening. So you want? I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. And uh, the first step uh, uh, to me is... Uh, uh, the word we, I had to get help because uh, there was an idiot runner in my life, me, and uh, I was really ignorant about a lot of things. I did a lot of things because I was ignorant, and uh, and alcohol made me just dumber and dumber, and uh, and my life was totally unmanageable. I didn't have any problem with that because I didn't have anything to manage, and uh, and I knew I was powerless over alcohol uh, a long time before I came to AA. I, I'm, I'm a type four alcoholic. And I knew that something had a hold of me, and it was uh, making it necessary and I, for me to drink. And uh, that's why uh, the phenomena of craving is my number one thing. I, there's different types of alcoholics, but uh, I'm the type of an alcoholic that my body will get me drunk before my mind will. I'm not one of these people that has a committee in my mind. I, I'm pretty simple. But, but I do have a, an alcoholic body. I have the mind of a chronic alcoholic, but I have a an alcoholic body, and my body is always trying to get me loaded. Even today, after 33 years, I, one of the most important reasons that I'm active in, in AA, and I go to NA because I did narcotics, and uh, my body is always crying for relief, always. I have broken every bone in my body. I've busted and tore up and ripped up, and, and, uh, and my, I live in constant pain. And I've learned to live with that in sobriety because of the fact that everything that's going on with that is to take me back to that drink. 
back to the drink. Everything I do obsessively, everything I do where I get unmanageable, it's just the, the disease likes confusion, and the reason it gets me going like that is to take me back to that drink. People that go out, I don't care what gets them there, they go out because they drink. So they go back to it. If I've worked all 12 steps in order for me to drink, I've got to work, I've got to run the bases backwards. I've got to go 12, 11, right on down the line, and the last thing I throw out is step one, and then I drink. So anything that's causing unmanageable uh, behavior in my life is just trying to confuse me so that I'll drink. I understand my disease, and that's what I understand about me. And uh, one of the things that is talking about to me when I interpret I'm working this step in sobriety. It didn't work when I did these steps and drank. So I'm working this step in sobriety. I'm sober. The first part, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol, slash, which is end of thought. That dash means end of thought, and that our lives are unmanageable. And so when I'm talking about unmanageable, I see the unmanageable of my drinking, but I need to see the unmanageable of my life sober. Because this whole thing to me is about patterns. Things that I did, patterns that I did, actions that I took, thoughts that I had that get me going to where I turn back around and I drank again. I pick up that drink. I had anger. And I was a rager. And, and in the midst of rage, you could stick a drink in my hand and I'd drink it. Not even though I did. So the rage had to stop. It had to stop. See? So that's what I saw in the first step. A powerless over alcohol. Slash, my life's unmanageable. I know I'm powerless over alcohol. Now I've got to get my life going in a positive direction. And that's what the first step. I believe when I went into that detox, I worked the first three steps, basically. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. I'm crazy, and I don't have a God. And I went into that detox. All right, step two says came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the principle of this step is power. we got to plug into the power. So what I had to think as an Al-Anon, what is it that makes me insane? I did not like that word. That step in the very beginning applied to him. Because <laughs> if he'd quit drinking, I'd be fine. Thank you very much. And he quit drinking... And I wasn't fine. And uh, my life was still unmanageable. Our laundry was still all over the house. Our house looked, it was horrible. And uh, my sponsor told me I had to sober up our house, which means I had to start doing laundry. And the thing that I loved about Keith going into detox is that they taught him how to do laundry there, too. And so he did his own laundry. He didn't like waiting on me to do laundry on the weekends. And I found out with Simone going to Alatine, she didn't like waiting on the weekends for her laundry either. And so they were both doing their own laundry, and I did mine. I folded all the laundry, but I didn't have to worry about putting it in the washer and the dryer and all that kind of stuff. And so as a result of this, some sanity started coming into our home. And if you take it into the traditions, the unity started coming in too because we were both, all three of us, were trying to work. Uh, together in helping our own selves, not each other at this point, but helping ourselves. 
and power. Where's that power come from? Where was God? He never worked for me. God wasn't in my life when I got here because I would, I thought I was praying, but what I found out in my inventory is that I would say, God, don't let him drink today. That's not a prayer. It was a command. And so God wasn't working in my life. So I've got to get in touch with this power, and it's not me. So I had to look back at the things in our life that was insane, and was there something taking care of us? And the thing that came to me was that we had we used to go camping all the time, but we never left until midnight because we had to load the camper up and load up the bikes and most of the stuff that we was taking didn't work and so we had to work on them and so by midnight we were ready to go camping and so we'd leave in the middle of the night and we got up in the mountains this one time and the road we was taking was going dirt bike riding that weekend and the road we was taking kept getting more and more narrow and Keith was drinking and uh We got up so far, and he finally said, Sue, take this lantern and go up there, walk up this road and see where this leads to. Because if we go much further, I'm not even going to be able to back down. And so I I walked up there as far as from here to the back of these three tables here, and it was a total drop-off. And it's like, why did we stop? Why did we do that? There had to be something taking care of us more than that. And so it made me realize that there was a power working in our life. There was a God taking care of us that was putting thoughts and planting seeds in our head. But more than anything, I had to recognize the fact that at this step, I had to stop fighting. And I had to surrender, and I had to be teachable, and I had to get rid of all my good ideas. All of my good ideas got me here and got me crazy. So I had to start throwing stuff out and asking a sponsor. And I'd, <laughs> I'd call my sponsor and I'd say, what do I do about this? And she'd go, what do you want to do? And I'd tell her what I wanted to do. And she goes, do exactly the opposite. And I'd say, I want to do that. And she'd go, I don't care. And that was always the conversation we had, and then I would do it. And I finally did away with that arguing because of the next step that came up. We cease fighting all people and all things and reading the big book. And uh, as long as I'm arguing, I'm going to be blaming, and blaming is not taking the first step for me. As long as I'm, and so the sanity is being restored little by little because I can't do all the things that I used to do and feel good anymore. This program really messed me up in that area when I was new because I couldn't act ugly and I couldn't do all these ugly things anymore and feel good about me. And I had to stop fighting and I had to discover that what suits me, what makes me feel good inside. I thought that being comfortable was what you felt like when you're sitting in a chair. I didn't know it was an inside feeling. And these are the things I had to learn. I went to... uh, a home show with my sponsor one day and we was walking around looking at stuff in the convention center and there were these two ladies in this booth and they were talking about resentments. And I said, uh, do you know those ladies? And she goes, no, I don't know those ladies. Why? And I said, because they're talking about resentments. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, they got to be in the program. 
because that's a word I'd never heard before I got here. She said, a lot of people have resentments. And I said, no, you either hate or you love. And I didn't know that you could like. I don't, I don't like what you're doing, but I love you. I hate your actions, but I love the person. And that's part of the sanity that started being restored to me. And I had to learn how to talk again. I had to get rid of a, I mean, like a girl came up to me in a meeting. She had on a new dress. How do I look in this? And I said, you look fat. And she started crying and she walked away. And my sponsor said, why did you say that to her? I said, because she asked. She said, why couldn't you say you have other things that I like better? I said, well, did she didn't ask. Do you like this better than whatever? And she said, Sue, you are so brutally honest. You hurt people's feelings. And they don't like you. What you need to learn is how to talk again. And she said, truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is people pleasing. And you need to find a middle zone in there. And so I had to learn how to talk all over again. I had to learn to to say what I mean, mean what I say, but not say it mean. And so the word whatever became a very important word in my house. When Keith smells, what do you feel about this? Whatever. And Keith would go, what does that mean? And I said, it means that I can't say a few anymore. You know? And I had to learn how to talk again. And I had to learn respect for their feelings. That they had feelings too. And that's part of the sanity that started being restored to me, is to have compassion and understanding and com- uh, learning to have uh, understanding for their feelings and let them explain their feelings to me instead of being the ultimate authority. When I got sober, I said, you can't be restored to something you never had anymore and you can come back from someplace you've never been. And... Uh, because I wanted to say I was crazy. That's what was wrong with me. I liked that better than being drunk. As a matter of fact, the most uh, important thing to me in the last years of my drinking was the, the only thing that was predictable was that I was unpredictable. And, uh, and I come to the program and I have to take this second step. And, and basically the, what they told me is I had to quit hitting people. I had to quit writing hot checks. And I had, cause she went to jail for my hot checks and I had to quit cheating on her and I had to pray. And so that was basically what I did to start uh, coming, coming to and coming to believe the second step. Uh, today, the thing that I recognize about the second step is that if I get insanity going, the insane thing for me after 33 years clean and sober is to do something that'll get me loaded when I know where I come from. See, I worked the second step from the fact that I'm sober today, and if I get the insanity going, which would take me back to get loaded, it's insane to do that. I just can't let it go that far so that, you know, it'll drop off the edge and I'll pick up. See, so restored to sanity is not that I'm perfect. Restored to sanity is that I know that certain things will get me drunk. And if I do them, I'll drink. I know what to do today because I know what not to do. Okay, and the third step came to believe that or turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood him. 
And there's two principles in step three. One's will, which is our thoughts, and the other one is life, which is our actions. And this step for me uh, is discipline. I have to learn to uh, not depend on uh, the alcoholic or my daughter or the group, my home group, or my sponsor to make me feel like somebody. I could no longer do all the self-seeking that I had been doing in order to make me somebody. And in the uh, AA 12 and 12, it talks about dependency 19 times in that chapter of changing our dependency from other things to a God. And uh, I have to take the actions. I never got arrested for what I thought. I only got arrested for what I did. And I can have a lot of insane thinking, but if I don't act on it, I don't get arrested. And I did get arrested for stuff like he said. Um, The ego starts to be removed in this step for me because it's humbling and I have to say, you know, there is a power greater than me. And and make the decision to turn my life and my will over the care of God as I understand him. Now, I had to realize that a God as I understand him was a God of my own understanding, what works for me. And today I talk to my God just like I talk to you. And God understands me. And he's a very important um, part. Well, he is the most important part of my life. You know, God comes first, the program, sponsorship, and family. And if those things don't come first, we don't have a family. It's like if AA and God and AA don't come first for Keith, we don't have a relationship. Same way in my program. If God and my program don't come first, we don't have a relationship. And it's no different today because, like he said, going back through the steps, the insanity cut back on meetings. I don't need to go to this meeting. The insanity of alcoholism says you're tired. Well, I was told in the very beginning, and I believe it today, nobody ever died of tired. Oh, what did they die of? Oh, they were tired. You never hear that. Oh, she went to too many meetings. She got tired. <laughs> we never hear that. And uh, I've never read it in the newspaper either, you know. There was one time Keith said to me, he was reading the paper in early recovery, and we had all tried to work together to clean house because we was all going to meetings, and I wasn't going to do it myself. I'm not the slave and the, the maid around here. We all have to take our, um, we all have to chip in and do it together. And uh, so anyway, we would tried all of that. I tried to hire Simone and pay her to do it, and she'd call me, and she'd say, Mrs. Drum, what do you want me to do about this? She wouldn't call me mother when she was cleaning house because... Her and mother had conflicts, but Mrs. Drum and her was an employer, an employee. We tried that. Oh, my God. So anyway, uh, I finally ended up getting a housekeeper. My sponsor said, you work, put in your budget uh, what it would cost for a housekeeper. And so I did, and we loved it. But we always, Simone used to say, why do we pay this woman to hide our stuff? Because she'd put stuff away for us. <laughs> And uh, one night Keith was reading the paper and he said, do you know that it says in here that 85% of all women who work clean their own houses? I said, really? Does it say how many meetings a week they go to? (laughs) 
And that's the last time we ever had a conversation about that. And it was about six months ago, I went to AAA to take care of some business. And I went in there, and this lady goes, Oh, my God, Sue, I haven't seen you for years. And it was Norma, the lady that used to clean house for us. And we had a great conversation. She First thing she said, Is Keith still sober? And I said, yeah, he is. She goes, great, because we had literature all over the house. And uh, we'd gotten a house in Las Vegas, and we spent half our time in Vegas and half in California. And we had exterminators come over this new house we got in Las Vegas. And we had Big Book and the all on 12 and 12 and the one day at a time book laying around. And the bug man goes, are you an AA? And I go, well, yeah, my husband is, and I'm in Al-Anon. He goes, great, today's my one-year sobriety date. And I went to Al-Anon, and his mother was at the meeting that I was in. And I said, isn't it great? You know, the guy that used to bug you takes care of my bugs. <laughs> and so it's like we've turned our life and our will over to care of God as we understand him. And uh, we run into all kinds of people that are in recovery we love each other, and uh, God is there working for us all the time. He relieved me of the bondage of self. The first morning I woke up and I thought about somebody else that had shared in a meeting that was having a problem, I thought, oh, my gosh. I'm living in God's will today, today. I thought of somebody else before I thought of me, and it felt good. And the third step prayer talks about it. It says, take away all my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness. That means I'm going to have some. And that uh, it says to help others. So in the third step, it's already talking about to bear witness to help others of thy will and thy love. Yeah. So in the third step, it's already pushing us forward to be of service to God and God's kids. When I sobered up, I said, I'm an atheist. <clears throat> and uh, So really, they got a dictionary, and they looked up the definition of an atheist, and I, I tried to read it. I didn't even understand it. And they said, you're going around saying you're something you don't even understand. <laughs> I said, well, I must be an agnostic. And well, maybe so. They said, what you need to know right up front is there is a God, and you're not him. And so they dethroned me. I was glad to give up the responsibility, but uh, they dethroned me. And they told me to pray every day, and I started praying every day, and I still do. And uh, after 33 years, I know God. I don't just know about God. I know God. And there's so many things have happened in my life that I'm sure that uh, uh, by letting go and letting God, it turned out much better than anything I could figure out. It'll either turn out exactly the way I want it. It'll turn out uh, uh, something totally different that I couldn't have thought of. And it's usually better. It's better. My problem is just letting go. The power of the third step is is unbelievable. Over the years of my sobriety, I I don't do the third step again and again. I'm not one of those that I do it and then I give it up and then I do it and then I give it up. I I either believe or I don't. And... and, uh, What's happened is that over the years, the uh, uh, the ability to reveal the fact that I've overcome a difficulty to a newcomer, the, the ability to uh, 
put more faith and trust into a power greater than myself uh, has, has gotten stronger. I have spiritual muscles today. I have spiritual muscles because I've gone through many uh, surrenders and many things have worked out good. And I'm very grateful for God uh, uh, letting our family be together. I'm very grateful to God for letting my, our family be together. And so I just, uh, I, I don't doubt, I know. And uh, I, I do the third step, but I read, I read and I pray. And uh, I've never, God's never sent me a memorandum. I've never seen God. He hasn't never talked to me or anything like that. I'm just pretty simple. And I, and I don't talk a lot about God because it's not necessary uh, for me to talk a lot about God, to, to have a God in my life. And it, 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 over the year, it's a process. And over the years of sobriety, it's gotten stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. The process has given me more strength and more belief and more faith. I have faith today. I have faith. And as you get older, why, uh, you know, you, you just don't have what it takes to fight it anymore. You let go and let God a lot easier as you get older. I'm 70 years old and I, I just don't want to fight it anymore. Okay, God, you can have it. You can have it. You have it. And the one thing, <clears throat> this third step has happened in my life with my daughter, our daughter. I love my daughter and she had every reason in the world to, to reject me and never have anything to do with me again. And I, uh, I, I prayed that I wanted to be a father. I wanted to be in that girl's life and to forgive me. And it happened and she forgave me. And our relationship is stronger today. Our, our bond is stronger because we both believe in the same direction. We're both in the same direction. Sue and I are in the same direction. And there again, after 33 years, there's three of us in our family. There's Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear. We're just older. But, but in that family unit, there's never, none of, there's never a time when all three of us are out of God consciousness. We're blood. We're blood family. And there's always one of us in God consciousness. Even though she's far, far away, whatever, we're still a family unit. We think it's a family unit. Blood in, blood out, baby, it's family. And we are what we are. And, and, and we're a unit, and there's always one of us in God consciousness, which keeps that bond. And one of the things that I thought of is that when I was new, I asked my sponsor, how can I tell the difference between my will and God's will? And she said, it's real simple. Yours hurts. And it's so true. And step four, made a searching and moral inventory of ourselves. And this one was hard for me because it was everybody else's fault, like I shared earlier. I had to look at the fourth column. When I looked at the fourth column, I realized that I caused most of the violence and uh, most of the stuff in our house, and I was always getting even. I love the sweet taste of revenge. You do this to me, you watch out. It's coming back around, you know. And you don't know when, but you'll get it, and I'm even, and that's the way it is. And uh, I don't live like that anymore. I, uh, I had to search a lot to find me and to give up all of the resentments and all the old ideas. And the principle of step three is moral. And, uh, you know, I had to look and see what I had in my life that was moral. And I had some moral principles in my life. When I was 
growing up, I was taught how to be a lady early on. I didn't want to be a lady. I was a tomboy. I remember my mom and my sister held me down to put a dress on me that my mother had made for me one year at Christmas. And when they stood me up in front of the mirror to look at myself, I threw up all over the front of the dress. I hated it. I did not want to be a girl. And uh, so this step, I had been taught how to be a lady. And so I knew some things how to be a lady. I had to go back to teachings of when I was a child and draw from those teachings. We all want to bash our parents when we get here. And everybody says they did the best they knew how to do. Of course they did. Of course they did. They tried to be good parents just like we tried to be good parents. My mother was a neurotic, self-centered, bitter person. And when I got to this program, my dad had died early on when I got to this program and I made amends to my daughter and I started living this way of life, my daughter would say, how could you be such a good mother that you are when you had a mother like that? And I've heard in this program for years, when you have lemon, when you get lemons made lemonade, well, I use my mother as an example of what I did not want to be. And when I got to you, you told me how to be a mother. And you told me I had to be attentive. And my daughter gave birth to her first child in Milan. And I got to go over there and be with her. I would have not known how to show up prior to that because I was so selfish and self-centered. And I would have resented the fact that she was over there anyway. You know, forget her. She chose to, to go over there. But you said I needed to show up and be a mother. And I got to do that with the second child, too. And it's like, what a blessing. What a blessing. And the first time I went over my daughter's house, I looked around. Nobody was yelling in that house. There weren't holes in the walls of her house. She wasn't afraid of her husband. The light in the hallway was out. And I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. How are we going to see in the evenings to get around? She goes, don't worry about it. And her husband came home that day from work. And pretty soon I look in there and he's got a ladder and he's up there and he's changing the light bulb. And I go, my God, that light went out this morning. I mean, now that would have taken months in our house to get replaced because we would be fighting about whose job is it to change that light bulb. <laughs> And it's like, this is a normal home. This is what normal is. So I did the inventory and looked at me and the things that I needed to change. And it was just um, amazing to me of who I was. I wasn't afraid of this step. A lot of people say I'm afraid of the fourth step. I was not afraid of the fourth step. I wanted to find out who am I, even though I didn't like what I found out. But I wanted to move on. And I think that's what's so important in this program is that we tend to hang on to stuff. You know, it's like there's a sign that says Al-Anon's, every time an Al-Anon lets go of something, there's claw marks on it. I didn't feel that way. I wanted to learn new stuff. I wanted to become a better person. I had hit such a hard bottom that uh, I was so desperate. And it's like I never thought of suicide. 
It was always homicide in my house. Like he said, I, I carried a butcher knife all the time. Anything went wrong. You know, it's like he says, I haven't drank or used since May the 11th, 1976. Well, I haven't stabbed anybody or kicked or slapped anybody since they, May the 11th, 1976. And so that is witness of what is going on with me that I've found out in these first four steps. I'm a selfish, self-centered alcoholic, and I'll rationalize and justify my behavior to the point of death. I will uh, defend my right to be right, uh, irregardless of the consequences. And that's what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I had when I sobered up. When I was in a detox, they told me I had to do a four-step, so I did an immoral inventory. I did a fearful inventory. I did a sex inventory, uh, you know, just bizarre stuff. But I, I did it. And I got out, and I got a sponsor, and I, he was telling me I should do a four-step. And I, I said, I've already done this. He said, no, you need to do one with me. And so he said, you need to go home and, uh, and write. And, uh, and I said, I need a big old long legal pad and about ten ballpoint pens because i got a lot of stuff. And he said, you're not that important. And he took a matchbook out, and he opened the matchbook up and took the matches out and the paper clip out of it so it wouldn't hurt myself. And he was a golfer. He gave me a little golf pencil, and he said, here, go do your four-step on this matchbook cover. And I said, well, I need more than that. He said, no, real simple. I said, number one, you're a liar. Number two, you're a cheat. Number three, you're a sneak. You're a phony. And I said, give me that thing. I'll, I'll go do it. So I tried doing it, and I I, I did the uh, – I would just spew my stuff out on anybody. We'd be going to a meeting, and I'd just start puking all my crap out on people, you know, and I was angry, and I had all kinds of weird stuff coming up. It was just boiling to the top. And, and uh, some of it, I, you know, I, it didn't even appear to be a part of my life until I was sober a period of time. So I always did did the best. And then I was around people say, you do an inventory every year. So every year I was doing this inventory, and it's like taking the knife and stabbing myself again. Another, oh, here we go again. I'm going to kill myself again with all this stuff. And, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, and I'm wicked, and I'm nasty. And, you know, just, just, people just got, I don't want to hear your crap. Why don't you shut up? Why don't you do a fourth and fifth step? And I, it took me six years, four months, and three days of sobriety. Six years, four months, and three days. And I finally called up a guy, an old timer and alcoholic, Chuck Chamberlain, who was a very spiritual man in our area, and his wife was a friend of Susan. I said, I need to do a four-step. You say if you do it like the book is, you only have to do it once. And I went to his house the next morning, and I did my last four-step with that man. And he took all my stuff, and he said, now this is mine. And uh, go home and get a good night's sleep and call me in the morning. And I did, and uh, and I was able to walk on down the road. And, and uh, you know, it takes time. One of the things about the fourth and fifth step is, you know, I can fake it. I can blaze through that. I can give you all kinds of stuff. I can curl your hair. I can make you cry. I'm, I'm a master at deceiving things. But, but as you stay sober little by little, what happens is your character defects start reappearing. Step six and seven start coming back. So the old guys that taught me, get through the fourth and fifth step and then let your character defects start causing you pain and sobriety. And then you'll have some recall. Because your character defects are about to get you drunk. And then you can make that eight-step list because now you're sober and stuff has happened to you just like you did to other people. I was sober and a guy lied to me. I said, a guy lied to me. 
I said, that guy lied to me. What, what's going on? And, uh, well, I got lied to. That guy cheated me. I got cheated. That guy fired me. I got fired. All the things that I did to people when I was drinking started happening to me sober. And then I knew how you felt when I fired you. I knew how you felt when I lied to you. I knew how you felt when I deceived you or cheated you. Until it started happening to me sober, I didn't even recognize that I was hurting you when I did it. If you were involved with me, you deserved to be hurt and cheated. But once it started happening to me sober, then more started being revealing. More things started happening to me. And as a result of it happening to me, more was revealed to me. So it took me six years, four months, and three days sober to do a fourth column, the fourth column, my part. I could fill out all kinds of crap, ditto, 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 ditto. But until I was sober long enough that my character defects are causing me pain. See, a character I won't give a character defect up as long as it's got pleasure in it. As long as there's pleasure in my character defect, I won't give it up. If I'm judging you and I'm getting off on it, I won't quit judging you. If I'm lying and cheating and getting away with something, I won't give it up until, it, until there's pain. And I had to be sober along and coming out of the fog in order to do that. So little by little, I had to quit doing inventories every year and stabbing myself, torturing myself with good ideas. And then I got sober and I got a little bit of sanity. And then I could see my part. And the reason I did that is so that I could see the patterns of my drinking. The patterns of my drinking are in that fourth column for me. Those are the things that I go back to and do, and then I get drunk again. I do that again, and I get drunk again. There's a whole set of patterns there that the fourth and fifth step. The fifth step wasn't that big a deal. God already knows. You know, I know. And so I got to tell somebody, and I had to tell a sponsor, so when I started duplicating that again, he'd say, hey, that was in your fifth step, straighten up. Oh, okay, all right. See? And, and I could move on. When I did the fifth step, that was a step I was most afraid of, of all of them, because uh, I knew that God knew, and he wasn't going to tell anybody, and I knew, and I wasn't going to tell anybody, but you tell another human being, and the jig's up, and you got to change. And I found out that's what I was afraid of, was change. And so on this step, I admitted to God, to ourselves and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I had to start getting honest with me, and I had to be honest with another human being. And so the principle of this step is honesty and humility. And so I got to uh, get into this step and give it away to my sponsor, and it developed a trust, something I didn't know about. And I got to develop trust in that person. I followed her around after I gave her my fifth step to see if she was repeating it to other people, and she didn't. And one night there was a guy that had come to our meeting, and he was sharing how much pain he was in because his daughter had come home and said she was pregnant. And he was in a lot of pain. And after the meeting, I went over to him and I said, can you imagine what kind of pain your daughter's in? And I shared with him about the story of when I'd gone to the unwed mother's home and the shame that I'd felt. And my sponsor came over to me afterwards and she said, do you know that was the big, deep, dark secret in your fifth step? I think you're going to get well. And uh, because I was sharing it with other people too, myself, and that's when the power goes away. And that's when we start getting in recovery is when we can share those things with others and learn to laugh at ourselves. One of my big deals in my 
inventory was fear. I thought I had none, and I had told my sponsor, I don't have any fears. I'm not afraid of nothing. Because I used to go in the bars and scout them out for Keith and beat guys up for him and beat girls up. I threw a girl through a plate glass window one time because she was flirting with Keith. I wasn't afraid of nothing, I thought. And when I was looking at that fear list, she said, come up with something. Get on your knees and ask God to help you. You're afraid of something because you're the most angry person I've ever known. And anger is a result of fear. And so I remembered when I was little and we'd do the dishes after dinner and we lived in the Texas Panhandle. And I'd have to, after dinner, my mom would tell my sister, you want to take out the trash? And she'd say, no, I'm afraid of the dark. And my mom would say, okay, well, we'll have Sue take out the trash. She's not afraid of nothing. And I'd go, no, I'm not afraid of nothing. And I'd go outside and it'd be pitch black out there and I'd run like crazy to the alley and dump the trash, run back up on the back porch, stand there and get catch my breath, and then go in the house, and I'd get all of the validation. Look at Sue. She wasn't afraid. Sue can do anything. And I thought when I was doing this, what am I afraid of? I don't know. And then God came to me and said, that's it. You are afraid of the unknown, which meant I was afraid of everything. And those are the kind of things that a sponsor helped me find out in this. And also in the sex inventory, which is a very important part of our recovery, is that I had to find out the games and the uh, retaliation. If you're a good boy, I reward you. If you're not, I punish you. I played a very important part in all of that stuff with my husband. We got the program. It's like everybody, well, you've been married for years. It's not like you're in a new relationship. Oh, yes, it is. It is, because I don't know who he is. I don't know who I am. But these are the steps that pointed out who we were and what we had to stop doing in order to start falling in love again. And so it was a very... um important step in my life to develop the trust. And I have the 12 rules of the um, of relationships in my book written down as my sponsor went through them with me when I did my fifth step with her. And a lot of it has to do with the honesty between me and my God and other human beings. Bottom line is what the fifth step's all about, is me getting honest and having humility in my life. And looking at the sixth step and my character defects, I found them all. And she said, it's very simple. There's only seven, and it's the seven deadly sins. And she linked every one of those defects up to one of the seven deadly sins, and that's who I am. And that's what I have to get rid of. How do I get rid of them? Because the sixth step, we're entirely ready. Because once we go through the humility of giving away our deep, dark secrets, then it's easier to look at our defects and say, yeah, this is who I am. I've got to change this. So we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Now what do I do? I ask God to remove them. I give them to God. I get on my knees and I say the seven-step prayer and I start working on the opposite. I'm hateful and ugly. I turn that over and I start working on becoming a loving, caring person. And all the people on my eight-step list were the ones I resented and on my inventory, on my resentment list. And I had to be willing to make amends to them. The the fifth step is really an important, very important uh, step. And people say, well, how do you develop a relationship? Why why is this all about relationship? I want to have a relationship. I don't know how 
have a relationship. Ah, what are you? What are the tools of relationship? The fifth step. Everything you need about a relationship is in the fifth step. You get a sponsor. You ask somebody, or you go to a priest. You ask somebody to share your stuff. You take your stuff. You take all your intimate things out of your fourth step. All your secrets, all that stuff. You ask somebody to listen to you. You become intimate with that person that you're sharing with. They become intimate by sharing back with you. You, get, you take down all the walls in a fifth step. Uh, you develop a relationship and trust in a fifth step. Uh, you develop a, a communications in a fifth step. You do everything but have sex, and some people do that in a fifth step with whoever they're doing it with, I guess. Yeah, it seems like it. That's why I went over, this girl came over to my room to do her fifth step, and now we're in a relationship. And I thought, oh, okay, the sex inventory must have been real easy. You both took your clothes off. So, you know, there's all kinds of little uh, things. Uh, one of the things that I had in my fifth step was I killed a guy, and it was uh, went down in court as justifiable homicide uh, self-defense, and I knew it was premeditated. And so I carried this. I committed the cardinal sin. I killed somebody, and da 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 And I was never going to have anything good in my life because I killed a man, and and uh, so I don't deserve to have anything good. And, uh, and the people in AA said, look, get off the cross. We need the wood. It went down. You are what you are. But what it ultimately amounted to is that I know me. I'm a sneak, and I'm a coward. And if I can get away with killing somebody once, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. And uh, the worst part of that is I'll probably kill me. It'll probably be me that I kill with self-loathing and uh, and self-pity. And it'll be me that'll die. And once I sober up, I didn't want to die. I want to, I want to live. I didn't come here to turn it off. I came here to turn it on. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to, to walk around in a dark cloud and be a gloom and doom and depressed. I came here to get out of that crap. I came here to get alive. I came here to enjoy things. I came here to stand up, hold my head up. That's, you told me I could do that. That's what I want. I want to stand up. I want some. I want to let go of the load. I want to recognize that there's more in life than just being to walk around with a sign on your back. I'm an alcoholic. So don't ask me to do nothing. Don't ever give me anything. Don't, don't, you know, don't give me any responsibility. Don't give me any joy. I'm an alcoholic. Just an alcoholic. And I'm going to be poopy the rest of my life. I come from that. I want to shout it from the highest hill. I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy life. People, I don't give, I don't have depressions. I give them. I am serious. I don't have time for a depression. I was depressed. I thought I went to a depression once. But, uh, no, I don't, that isn't sobriety. I want, I want some more. I want more. I want more than that. I came here. You said I could have more. I want more. God is love. God is kindness. God is caring. God is prosperity. I want more. I want more money. I want more money. I want more love. More, that's, what's the word for today? More, what's the word for tomorrow? Much more. <laughs> you know, lighten the load, drop the load, drop the rock, get off the cross, come on, let's go. And I wanted to let go of it. I just didn't know how. I didn't know how. And little by little, why pieces were chipped off, I'd let, you know, I'd go with some people and I'd be telling something and I'd recognize that I didn't tell them the whole lie. 
How do you quit lying? Right in the middle of the lie. I just quit talking. And they people would say, what's up, dude? I said, well, I was lying. I just stopped. <laughs> the first time I went and shared at a meeting for an hour why they recorded it, and the guy gave me a copy of the tape. I was less than a year sober. The guy gave me a copy of the tape. My dad had just got sober, and I wanted him to hear my talk, and so I went home, put it in, and listened to my talk, and I lied so much, and I knew my dad knew the truth. I couldn't send him that cassette. I called him. I said, I gave a talk. He said, send it to him. I said, no, I can't, because I lied so much. You know I'm lying. You'd give me a bunch of crap about it. I had to quit lying. <laughs> hey? And I let people know. One time I went to this uh, uh, retreat, Catholic retreat, and I had this thing, I'm a murderer, I'm a killer, I'm a murderer, I'm a killer, I'm a murderer, I'm a killer, I'm never going to have nothing good. So they had a little thing, you sign up and go see this priest. And so, oh, okay, I'll go tell this priest I'm a murderer. So I went over and I signed up, and you get 12 minutes. And so I go in, this little priest is in there. I said, you know, I killed this guy with my bare hands, beat him to death. You couldn't even recognize him. There's blood all over everything. I'm murdering. I was in prison. They took me down to this little room and said, that's a green room. You're going to die in here, boy. You're going to be dead in here. We're going to take you to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell for sure. I'm a murderer. I never have anything good. He said, well, anger's your cross to bear. He said, I'm a homosexual. You want to trade? I said, no, I'll just keep mine. Thank you. Bless you. I don't have no problem with that. It's just that I'll, you know, I'll walk in my shoes if you don't mind. Everybody's got a cross to bear. That's what he said. I don't know if this is true or not, but he laid one on me. I didn't want, my grandma, you said, everybody hangs their troubles on the line. When the whistle blows, you'll go for yours and I'll go for mine. That's what I'm about. I'll pack my load. I'm familiar with it. The point is I have to, I have to see these patterns. It's about patterns. I have to see these patterns. I have to stop the patterns of my drinking. I, I get this going and then it just, I'm drunk. And I have to stop the pattern. And the fifth step, give me a new beginning. It gave me a new relationship with a sponsor. It gave me a new relationship with another human being. It gave me a new relationship with God. And I'm excited about it. Hey, 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 I go in prisons. These guys in prison said I'd like to do a fifth step with you, but if I do my fifth step with you, they'll probably subpoena you for court. I said, let me tell you something, Slick. You're in prison. I know you have codes and you have little things. You can pass notes and you can fly them kites. So why don't you just code up on your little fifth step with me and we'll have it in code and then nobody can subpoena me. Hey, there's ways to do that. The thing I had, I did a fifth step with a kid and he said, you know what? I went home. I wasn't cleaning up my room. My mama told me to clean up my room. She locked me in my room. And, uh, I was mad at her and she said, you can't come out till you clean your room. He said, you know, I knew I had two marijuana cigarettes hid down there underneath the, the overpass down by the freeway. So I crawled out the window. I went down there under the overpass and I got a marijuana cigarette out and I was smoking a marijuana cigarette and this bum come along. And he said, you got another cigarette? He said, yeah. And I gave him a marijuana cigarette, and then he smoked my joint, and I smoked his joint. And then I went back and crawled in the window, and now I'm in the window, and I'm back in the room. And now I'm sober, and I think I'm gay, and it's my mama's fault. It's your mama's fault? I mean, new sober, we don't know whether we're what. 
And here he is wanting to blame his mama because he went down under the overpass, smoked a couple of marijuana cigarettes, and they had a little friendly endeavor down there. And now it's mama's fault. I said, who got out of the window? Whose joints were those down there? That guy just did what he did. You need to sober up and get straight and decide what you are. Whether you're gay or straight, but you need to do it and quit blaming mama. Because it ain't mama's fault that you crawled out the window and went down there. See? It's your fault. And those are the things I had to come to believe and come to understand. What's my fault? What's my part in it? Quit blaming people. How funny. I got to receive a fifth step from this AA gal here a while back, and she was mad. She called. He left. He said he's going to take care of me the rest of his life. And he left. And... uh I said, really? And she goes, yeah, and he left in my car. And he said he's going to take care of me the rest of his life. And I said, okay, so you're in an apartment. Whose name's on the lease? Mine. And he said he's going to take care of you the rest of your life. Yeah, he's did. Yeah, and I said, does he have a job? No, but he's going to take care of me the rest of his life. And I said, uh, so how did you meet this guy? And she said, well, he was homeless, but he's going to take care of me the rest of his life. And he left, and I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You went to Alcoholics Anonymous to help get help for your drinking. You've come to Al-Anon to get help with relationships. But I don't think there's any help for stupid. You know? And so we have to look at ourselves. What are we looking for? <laughs> and the principle of the sixth step is that we, that God removes. We ask God to remove. And the principle of the seventh step is humility. We admit that what they are and we turn them over and we try to work on the good stuff. We become willing to make that eight-step list. And uh, the principle in the eighth step is that we it's the willingness and we stop blaming others. And we look at our part and we make those amends. And it really doesn't matter uh, what the willingness is on that list when we get there. Put them on there anyway. This lady that I sponsored would not put her mother on there. And uh, she had big-time resentments toward her mother, and and I really didn't blame her after listening to her fifth step. And she called me one day, and her mother was uh, had passed away, and she hated her like crazy. And she said, I'm not going to make amends to my mother. I will not write her a letter and say I'm sorry or I forgive her or any of that kind of stuff. But now every time I go look in the mirror, I see my mother, and I'm losing it. And I said, forgiveness is also letting go. You have to let go of your mother for the things that she did and quit blaming her for being who you are. You went through all of that crap, and you made it, and you're alive. You're a survivor. Hang on to that. Give that part away to your daughter, that you can get through anything with a God of your understanding and these 12 steps. Pass that on to your daughter and quit blaming your mother because you're 40 years old. I remember seeing a lady, she had 40-some years in AA, Claire, and we was at the LAX and we was waiting on a flight, and, and this other lady came in, and she was on her way to a convention also, and, and Claire, the 47-year-old sober AA lady, was sponsoring this new gal. And she had time in the program, and this gal sat down, and and I think this gal had like 16, 18 years of sobriety, and, and Claire said to her, how are you today? And she said, oh, I'm having a problem with the, the inner child in me today. And Claire said, you know what? 
I heard your fifth step. She goes, go in there in the women's restroom, stick your finger down your throat and throw that bitch up. And let's get on with the business of living. (laughs) Because that's what these steps do. They get us on to the business of living. And the ninth step, make direct amends wherever possible. And people misunderstand that word a lot. And they think whenever, but it's wherever, which means it's in God's time. It means that when you are standing right in front of that person and you feel comfortable with yourself, that's when you can do it because you know God's on your side. And the amends don't ever have to be accepted. We're making them for ourselves so we can get the freedom. And we can do it with a lot of self-confidence. I made an amends to my mother, and my mother never forgave me. And, uh, and that was her problem, not mine, not mine. And, uh, but the deal was is that my daughter forgave me when I made my amends to my daughter, and I started changing and becoming a new me. And uh, my daughter gave me the forgiveness. Keith gave me the forgiveness because it's like I was ugly to him. I started the violence and the fights and all the stuff in our home, and uh, he didn't want to do that with me. But I would keep agging him on and keep agging him on until the last thing he had to do was just knock the heck out of me. So it gets us on to the tenth step in the thing that's so important to me in the tenth step is consistency. Consistency with me. When I hear some, one of the ladies I sponsor call me and they keep reiterating the same old thing over and over again, I know they have stopped their morning meditation. They are not doing it. They're back into self-will and they become white asses all over again. You know what? My sponsor told me the other day that uh, her husband's uh, ill with cancer. And uh, and I talked to her, and I said, uh, you know, and I always call my sponsor, and I talk to her about me and what I'm doing, and then I always ask her, how are you all doing? And the other day she said to me, if I have a problem, can I call you if I can't get a hold of my sponsor and if I need to talk to somebody? And I said, Absolutely. She said, the reason I want to talk to you is because you always share with me what you're doing and what's going on with you and any problems you might have. That's what I need. I need to get into you and get out of me. And she said, and uh, everybody else that I sponsor is into the drama, and you will not get into the drama with me. She said, you've prayed with me, and uh, you've talked to me about God's will. And she said, what a compliment coming from your sponsor, you know. And it's like, oh, my God, you know. I let go of the drama a long time ago. There are no big deals today. Coming from where we came from, there are no big deals. And my sponsor and her husband are very spiritually fit today. And they're dealing with this thing on a spiritual level. I remember asking a sober priest in Alcoholics Anonymous one time at a retreat that I was at, what's the difference? You know, I need to go back to church. And he said, don't do that until you're ready. Not until you've been through all of these steps and you have balance in your life because he said uh, alcoholism has taken everything away from you. He said religion is for people who are afraid to go to hell and the 12 steps are people for us. Spirituality is for those of us who have already been there. And he said once we get centered with our God, 
then religion can help enhance your spirituality, but religion will never fix you because there's no relation there. There's no relating with each other, only this people and people in it. And Keith's sponsor here a while back was talking to me, and when he does his tenth step every night, he said, I do the three C's every night. I, I look at, have I condemned, have I criticized, or have I complained? And uh, I went back to him a couple of weeks later, and I said, you know, it's hard. It's easy for me to not complain and to not condemn, but I really get into the criticism part. And he said, I know, I've gotten phone calls on you. People are criticizing you and condemning you. And uh, he said, you're given resentments, and he was teasing me. And uh, I love that man a lot for the principles of the program that he has. And more than anything, I love him because he helps my husband stay sober. And that's a principle in our life. And the 11th step for me is the power. When I went through all this stuff with my mother and she finally passed away, uh, I was disinherited because she had asked me years ago, you choose Al-Anon or you choose me. And Keith Sponsor had told me, you know, he took me through the big book and he said, uh, family, no family, job, no job. We must choose this way of life or we will surely die. And my mom didn't speak to me for 17 years. And when my brother passed away, she called me and I went and helped her. And I thought after that we had an okay relationship. But what I'd done from the get-go with that when she said that is I sent her cards on holidays, birthdays, and thinking of you every so often at Christmas, I'd send her, you know, flowers. At Easter, I'd send her flowers and all this stuff. And then when she died, I went to take care of business, and uh, I'd been disinherited. She left me one dollar and left the rest of her estate to charity, and she didn't have that much. But the neat part was is that my daughter said, how could you be such a good mother when you had her as an example? Yeah. And Keith had told me when he married me, he had been married to a rich woman. And when he married me, he said, baby, I love you because, you know, you don't have nothing. If I give you a Snickers candy bar, you're going to be grateful, you know, because I was raised so poor. And uh, so when I was back there in Texas and straightened up my mom's stuff and uh, doing her funeral, I called Keith and he said, babe, you take care of business. I'm so proud of you. You can do this. And I'm sorry you're having to go through this. But he said, you take care of business and you get your little skinny ass back here to California because i got a Snickers candy bar waiting on you. <laughs> yeah. And that was the most loving thing he could have said to me. Yeah. And, uh, and ladies that call me said, you must be working on the third step really big time. And I said, no, I'm not. I've gone way past that. I'm in the 11th step. I'm praying for the knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. Because when I got her will, I had to take it back to the nursing home, give it back to them, have them sign off on it that I gave it to them. I had to go to the mortician and say, I can't do this because it was coming out of her estate. He said, no problem. I'll put a lien on her estate. I had to talk to an attorney about all of that and get all those answers. It took humility to walk through every step of that, but it took the power of my God to help me walk through that with dignity. And I did it. And I did it with Keith and my daughter and the ladies I sponsor and my sponsor walking me through that. And I said to my sponsor, my God, I've tried to do everything you've told me to do with my mother. What happened? And she said to me, you were the best daughter she would let you be. And that's why I love sponsorship is because they always say those things to us and we, we don't know it. 
And the 12th step is the, uh, I love the 12th step. Practice these principles in all of our affairs. My spiritual awakening is that I'm not who I used to be. Spiritual awakening, I'm me today. I love me. I love being around you. I love giving this program away. It is my, God gave me a purpose. And I practice these principles in all of my affairs. And I'm going to close with this story and turn it over to Keith. A few years ago when they had the grocery strike out in California, uh, they were picketing. And I'd go in the grocery store and they would cuss me out and say, you can't go in there, you know, you're crossing the picket line. And I've shared with you I was in human resources. And I knew what they were doing and I understood. And I said, I understand what you're doing. And I said, you got to do what you got to do. But I'm an older woman. I've shopped here at this store for 20 years. You're not going to change me. So do what you got to do. It's fine. And it was uh, coming up on hall, on uh, Valentine's. And so when I'd go in that grocery store, I'd buy those little candies with the hearts in it that say I love you and all that stuff on it. And I'd take it out there and I would give it to those picketers. And they'd say, well, thank you. You know, that's sweet. And after that strike was over, I was sitting in a meeting one Tuesday night, my home group meeting, the Godawana group. And this lady came in and she said, oh, my God, you're the lady that gives the candy to the picketers. I'm so glad I'm here. Now, if I'd gotten that fight with all those picketers and said the things that I thought they should hear coming from the other side of the fence, what would have that newcomer done when she walked in there and said, oh, there's that lady that flips us off and says all those ugly things to us? So when they say that you might be the only picture of a big book that anybody ever hears, they're not fooling. The long-timers know what they're talking about. This is a spiritual awakening. This is all about serving God and being one of God's kids. And it's all about taking it out there and not knowing who we're taking it to, but to be the best example we can be when we can be that example. Or looking for the example, sticking with the winners, that's important too. And so if I'm looking for a winner, we got to do it. Thank you. When uh, when I uh, started trying to work the steps and did the steps a number of times and would do my sixth and seventh step, why well, I couldn't see my character defects and I had to wait till they caused pain. And then I do my eight step list uh, I, until things, like I said, till things start happening to me. And I could see, you know, me doing it to somebody else. I, then I could put, make a thorough eight-step list. And so it was real simple there. It takes time. I still carry my eight-step list, my billfold. It's an ongoing thing. I'm not that big a deal, but it's still an ongoing thing. My ninth step uh, was financial to start with. There were some things that I couldn't do. Uh, kill this guy. His family wanted to kill me for a long time. And, there was things involved there, mostly stay out of the way, stay out of, mind my own business. My sponsors say, mind your own business. Shut up and listen. Shut up and listen. When am I going to get to say something? We'll let you know when you can talk. Shut up. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. I didn't know how to do that. And uh, uh, one time I went to see these people to make amends. And I remember my sponsor saying, mind your own business, mind your own business. And I stuck my nose in these people's life to make a amends. And a guy pulled a knife out, switchblade, and he stuck it in my nose, and he cut my nose. 
And he, he said, and it's bleeding, gushing. And I'm sober. I was making amends. And he, he said, mind your own business. I got it now. <laughs> Finally got it now. Moderate. Modulate. Well, anyway, it took a long time. And, uh, and I, the people that I sobered up with, they believed you work the first nine steps. And if you don't drink or use again, you're through with the first nine steps. Then, the, then you work 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12. It's old school. Some of the old school people, and they believe that way. And, and the first nine steps, you work them about what it was used to be like, take care of business there, and then you work sobriety 10, 11, and 12. And I've always prayed and meditate. Sometimes it took me a year or two to be promptly admit that I was wrong, but I'd get around to it. And the uh, problem I had was when I prayed, I didn't hear nothing. When I meditated, I always slipped into a sexual fantasy. So I kind of had to get focused there. And the 12th step is I, I started working with newcomers. I love working with newcomers. I still work with lots of newcomers. And it's my joy, and I, I get my fulfillment, and it's made full circle. So uh, I can't get more complicated. I'm a very simple person when it comes to that. I have my prayer. I have my meditation. I feel good about it. I feel good about what I do. And God has given me some peace and some self-worth and uh, some consistency. I'm very consistent. I have, uh, I believe in accountability, and I'm very accountable. I'm very consistent. And when I say you can see me at my home group, you can see me at my home group. And... Uh, I have a sponsor, and I and I uh, love to uh, listen to Sue do the steps, and I always relive that as we do it. And there's more cleansing, so that's all I got to say. Okay. All right, real the tape's off. So if you guys got any questions, ask us some questions.